some time. We're going to start a new series this morning. We're going to pray uh, again just as we come to the Word. Lord, as we, your children, come to your Word this morning, Father, we pray that you would, uh, your Spirit would, would teach us, would lead us and guide us. Lord, that we, we might come with humble hearts and open ears, that you might challenge us and change us, continuing to transform us into your likeness, we pray. Amen. Last night we had the uh, um, 60th anniversary of our high school up the road. Um, who managed to get out to that? It was fantastic. It was great to see so much of the community out there, the kids engaging in the rides. And um, I know for Benny, one of his favourite rides is the teacup ride um, because you can, uh, as you're spinning around in your teacup, like all the teacups are spinning around, you can then spin your own teacup as it spins around. Um, and, and so they like to spin it to the max. And uh, it reminded me of when I was a child, we'd go down to the, the playground of the local park and there'd be a merry-go-round. Uh, and what we would do, uh, me and my mates or my brothers and sisters, we would grab hold of one of the, the bars that sort of went into the middle and we would run around pulling this merry-go-round as fast as we could. And when it started to get to a point where we couldn't run any faster and we couldn't pull this thing any faster, we'd jump on. And we'd sit on there on, looking out or leaning out and looking up at the sky. And you get dizzy. Everything just becomes a blur as the trees and the other playground equipment just whiz past. Everything's just a blur and it's crazy. And then as soon as it started to slow down, we'd jump off and we'd try and run in a straight line until we fell over. Um, that's what was, life was fun. <laughs> that's how we made fun when I was a kid. Now, in the showgrounds today, you've got things like the teacup rides or the, the Gravitron. Who remembers the Gravitron. Now you, you go inside and you basically stand up against this padded cushion and everybody's in a circle and the whole thing spins and eventually you, you go up and sometimes they've got a hole in the top and so you can see out. And again, it's the same kind of thing. Like everything becomes, when you're looking out, everything becomes a blur. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like every year that goes by as I get older, life feels more and more like that. Like life is just coming at us at an ever-increasing pace. Technology advances. We have more information, more knowledge, more data just streaming into our lives than ever before. More opinions, more facts. And, and it can get, at times it can get dizzying. It's hard to know which way is up and which way is down because you've got some people that say this and some people that say that. And, and it's so hard for us to find and make sense of life. And then there are times where just everything in life just seems to go wrong. I don't know if you've had a season like this that like you have a, a problem. It might be in your car, in your family, uh, in your workplace. Uh, it might be down uh, at the footy club or it, whatever. There's a problem that you have to deal with. And, and you get to the point where you're just about to have that problem fixed and solved and then something else comes along. 
and then something else comes along and then something else and and it, it kind of feels like at times that that life not only are we we spinning around just getting dizzied by all of the news and all of the information being bombarded at us on the internet and uh, social media and uh, Netflix and Facebook and YouTube and all of these things just constantly streaming into our lives but we're still dealing with the realities of, of problems in our life. You know, we, we sang this morning just that, that song with the kids, uh, Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. And so much of life, we, we, get, we get sidetracked, don't we? We get sidetracked into trusting in other things other opinions and other information. We, we get sidetracked on other issues and we, we, we start to focus in on our energy, on our problems, on the challenges that we're facing rather than the foundation that solves them. This morning we're starting a new series looking at the life of Joseph, not Mary's husband, Joseph, but Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. And, and we're titling the series, But God Meant It For Good. We're going to see over the next couple of months that there was a lot of things that were going wrong for Joseph in his life. His life was, was massively messed up. But also by the time we get to the end of it, um, we're going to see that, that God has been faithful through it all. And that while, while those around Joseph had ulterior motives, while there were bad things happening, Joseph came to understand that God was using all of those things for the good of his kingdom, for his big plan. So if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. I'll come to that in a minute. But before we, we kick off into Joseph's story, we really need to understand the background of Joseph's story and indeed God's plan. You see, God's plan starts right back before creation. We first get our glimpse of it in, in Genesis chapter 3 when, uh, when, when Adam and Eve's sin is discovered and God promises that uh, the son of man, the son of, of uh, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, a reference to the coming redeemer in Jesus. We, we see it uh, again uh, in Abraham's call uh, in Genesis chapter 12. And I, I want to read that for you now. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless, bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, here is God's plan, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was, was uh, quite old. Um, his wife Sarah was beyond normal childbearing age. Um, and, and so uh, Abraham had a son Ishmael to his wife's servant Hagar. 
um, because they, they were getting a little bit impatient with God's timing. God had given them this promise of descendants and, and they were getting on in age. Uh, and, and so they thought, well, maybe we can speed things up for God. And so uh, Abraham slept with his wife's servant, Hagar, uh, and bore a son, Ishmael. Uh, but Ishmael was not the one that God had promised Abraham, that, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And later comes along Isaac, a son born to Sarah. Isaac married Rebekah. And, and they had two sons, twins, Esau, uh, who was quite hairy. He was a hunter, and Jacob. And that, so, so here are these two twins, Esau born first, and then Jacob coming out, holding on to the heel of his brother. And because Esau was the firstborn, he held the birthright of the blessing and the promise of God. But later on, as we would read, Esau sold his birthright to his brother Jacob for a bowl of soup. And so uh, Jacob received Isaac's blessing. Uh, Jacob then went to find a, a wife. Um, and uh, in, in his journeys back and forth, he wrestled with God and uh, God changed his name to Israel. So when we talk about the nation of Israel, that's where the name comes from. It came from when God renamed Jacob Israel. Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. Um, and those 12 sons make, the, make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so that gives us a basic understanding. We, we already start to get a bit of a picture that this family is pretty dysfunctional already, don't we? You know, you've got Abraham having a child to his uh, wife's servant, Ishmael. So Ishmael and Hagar, and that brought all sorts of tensions and problems into that family unit. Then you have Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers that, that often battle together. Interestingly, here's, here's a little bit of a, uh, a sidetrack for you. Esau, the descendants of Esau became the Edomites. Uh, and also the Amalekites. And you might remember from a couple of years ago when we looked at Esther, Haman, the bad guy in the story of Esther, who tried to have all the Jews that remained in Babylon killed. Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites, a descendant from Esau, this, this people that warred against Israel. And, and so we see this dysfunction there. So Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, his father's wanderings, in the land of Canaan. So Canaan was the land that Abraham had come to and God had said, this is the land that I'm going to give to your descendants. And so Abraham's children lived there uh, and Isaac's children lived there. But God had not yet given them possession of the land. This, is, this would come much, much later after uh, they had been in, in Egypt, after they had been enslaved in Egypt, after, after God had delivered them from Egypt. And then even after they had wandered for 40 years in the desert because of their disobedience, they would eventually take the promised land uh, under Joseph. Okay. So that gets us to Jacob. We're getting there. Now, Jacob's family was quite complicated. When, when he found a wife who was his 
mother's brother's daughter, I think. Laban's, Laban was his mother's brother. And uh, he saw Rachel and Rachel saw him and they fell in love. Uh, and Laban said, well, if you want to marry my daughter, you've got to work for me for seven years. So he did. He worked. Jacob worked for Laban for seven years. And then he had this wonderful wedding ceremony, um, went into the, their marriage tent uh, and then woke up the next morning and it wasn't Rachel lying next to him, but Leah. Um, Laban had, had tricked Jacob uh, into marrying Rachel's sister, Leah. So Jacob wasn't very happy about this and he goes to Laban and he says, well, look, uh, I needed to do something because no one was going to marry Leah. Uh, if you work for me for another seven years, I'll let you marry Rachel. Um, but he was allowed to marry Rachel and then work for another seven years. So, again, we're dealing with a pretty messed up family environment here. And so because Jacob loved Rachel and, it, and Leah was hated, God, God showed favour upon Leah because God is a compassionate God and opened her womb and she bore children. Uh, and this got Rachel upset. So Rachel then gives her servant, her maid servant, to Jacob that, that she may bear children for Jacob. Uh, and then after a while, uh, Leah's stopped bearing children and so she gives her maidservant to, to Jacob to bear children. And then finally, uh, and then Leah bears some more children and then uh, finally Rachel bears two children. So here we go, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old. So Joseph was the eldest of Rachel's two sons. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah. So they're the maidservants, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back uh, a bad report to them, to their father, or of them to their father. Now, Israel, that's Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colours. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So here we see, start to see some unhealthy elements coming in. There's favoritism, there's jealousy, there's bitterness, there's pride all coming in. Uh, verse 6, he said to them, jo Joseph said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaths in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaths gathered, gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed ruler over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. You've got to remember that, that Joseph is one of the youngest of all of Jacob's children. And so here is the youngest, the second youngest in the, in the family coming and, and telling the older kids the older brothers and sisters that hey I'm going to be more important than you that doesn't go down too well 
In verse 9, we continue. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to, to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the, the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to, them, uh, he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So Joseph sent, uh, so Jacob sent Joseph from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, "What are you seeking?" "I'm seeking my brothers," he said. "Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock." And the man said, "They have gone away, for I heard them say, "Let us go to Dotham." So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben had heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him. The plan was that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to their father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite at traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. So we, here we're seeing that you know, his brothers are now acting in, in seemingly good intent. We, let's, not, let's not kill him. Let's not, not shed his blood. We'll, we'll just sell him on. You know, that's doing him a favor. Can you see how messed up this family has become? How, how crazy things have become. When Reuben returned to the pit in verse 29 and, and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This is what we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. 
And he identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore, uh, tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an office, officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard. How crazy and messed up has Jacob's family become? Where, where they deceive openly and actively seek to deceive and then to cover up their own sin, their own deceit, their own selfishness, their own pride, their own arrogance, their own jealousy. How they must have felt when Jacob identified the cloak and declared that, that Joseph must have been devoured by an animal. That conceited look, that glint in their eye thinking, we've done it. We've rid ourselves of that annoying brother. So here we have God's plan. Hidden through all of this mess. And I love that. I love the fact that the family that God chose to bless all the families of the earth that we saw in, in the calling of Abraham was a family that was full of brokenness and dysfunction. God works within the mess of our life. God works within the brokenness of our life. Even though we're not perfect, God remains at work. We're only a couple of generations down from Abraham. And life has become so full of distractions, of bickering, of competition, of jealousy, favoritism and bitterness. God steps in and shows Joseph these couple of dreams. And instead of Jacob, who had wrestled with God, setting aside and inquiring of God, is this from you? He rebukes his son reinforcing the perceptions that his brother that Joseph's brothers had upon him things certainly don't go as Joseph would have expected it ends in a big mess a conspiracy to murder their brother a cover up a desperate effort to save a brother's life only to sell him into slavery it's like everything when we're trying to do something good, everything that we do, everything that we try just seems to end up in brokenness, end up in failure. We end up in a pit, in a hole, just like Joseph. That pit could be our health, could be just the, the ongoing struggle with health one thing after another after another and I know many of you have struggled with many different illnesses and and have many uh, a litany of, of doctor's appointments um, already booked into schedule and and that can be a weight on your shoulders 
a weight of not knowing where is my health going? Am I going to improve? Am I going to, to re- ha- have my health return to me or am I going to be like this until my last days? It, it can be a source of, of, of frustration and anxiety of how am I going to meet these appointments? How am I going to get there? How am I going to manage all of this? What if I don't even understand what they're telling me? I know that uh, just in the past month, Uh, seeing doctors about my back Uh, I take my wife with me whenever I can my wife who is a nurse because so many times I need her afterwards just to tell me plainly and simply this is what they want you to do that's all I want to know this is what's going on this is what they want you to do so health can be are concerns. Sometimes it's not even our own health. Sometimes it's the health of those close to us. Close to us. That can be an ongoing concern. Sometimes our pit might be finances. Just trying to find the balance in life, the drive to to work, just constantly rolling around, never ceasing. Just, just constantly filling our lives. And, and, and as we do it, we, we, we do it with an intent to, to create a, a more stable, consistent, comfortable life. But, but as soon as we do that, there are bills that come in. There are problems that arise. And, and so we're in this never-ending cycle. Maybe it's, it's self-worth or a self-image that, that we just struggle through a season where it's hard to look upon ourselves, hard to think about ourselves and how we're traveling and how we're living our life and feeling like there is anything of value there. How could anybody love me? We're sharing with uh, some of our, our guys, we're doing a preaching workshop during the week and uh, coming up later on this year, we're going to be doing a series um, looking at uh, living in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and just sharing about a young boy that I met when I was doing my teaching degree. And his, his mum had had cancer and his dad had had, had a, a nervous breakdown. He was the oldest of, of his brothers and sisters. They'd often come to school and they wouldn't have any lunch. And this one day... I saw him and more than any other day, I could see that things were not right. And as all the other kids went out to the lunch break, I knelt down beside his desk. I said, mate, what's what's wrong? He, He just kept looking down. And he said, no one, no one cares about me. For him, at 11, 12 years old, just seeing his, his parents consumed by the, the worries of life, he had nothing left. There was no hope in his life. There was no reassurance. And I praise God that I was there that day to reassure him that, that there was someone there was someone who cared about him, that I cared about him. Our lives are full of brokenness. 
And just because we, we follow Jesus doesn't mean that that brokenness disappears yet. We, we still wrestle with sin. You know, Paul talks about the thorn in his flesh three times. He prayed for it to be removed, but God would not remove it. Jesus said, you will be persecuted. They will hate you. They will revile you because of me. We will have hardships in life. But there is hope. God has a plan. And he reminded us of that plan. In this story, the, the life of Joseph, he reminded us of that plan, that that plan involves him, God, coming down into the mess and the brokenness of our lives when he chose a messy, broken, dysfunctional family to be the vehicle of his redemption plan. We try to convince ourselves that we don't need anyone else. You know, when we're, we're, when, we're, when we're struggling with these potholes, when we're struggling with these problems in life, when we're struggling with our self-esteem and loneliness, we, we try and convince ourselves that, that we don't need anyone else, that our failures, our faults, our weaknesses are things that we can't change and that other people just need to get on with and, and accept, kind of like Joseph's brothers. Instead of acknowledging their own jealousy and their own bitterness, they tried to convince themselves that their problems would go away if they just dealt with, with Joseph. Other strategies that we often uh, go to, other ropes we try and cling on to uh, are ignorance. We try and ignore our financial problems because it's just more than we can cope with, more than we can deal with. Same with our health. And men, we, we are, are terrible. How often do we go to our GP for a checkup? How often do we go to the dentist when there's no painful tooth or problem that we know of? And sometimes there can be a pain, there can be a problem, but we avoid it. We avoid it anyway. And when, when these kind of uh, behaviours, when these kind of coping mechanisms creep into our Christian faith, into our walk with God, it becomes incredi incredibly concerning. Because what happens is that we, we gradually allow our faith to be diluted by the opinions and emotions of others instead of allowing the Word of God to radically transform us from within. We're sought to conform the, world, uh, conform the world around us to our own form of faith, to our own brand of Christianity. Have you noticed that in your life? Where, where you shape, you, you make a bargain with yourself of what is acceptable, what's okay, what is, what is it actually uh, makes someone a Christian, a follower of Jesus. We, we do that because that's comfortable and that's convenient rather than relying on the Word to transform us, to change us. God did not save us as we are to remain as we are. He saved us as we are, as sinners, 
as broken in order to change us, to transform us, to redeem us, to restore us into his likeness. God wants something far greater, far better for us than trying to cling onto these threads of hope in ignorance, in avoidance. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, we are encouraged to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have this great record of God's faithfulness from generation to generation. We're told of Abel and Enoch, Abraham and Moses. We're told of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Uh, in the book of Judges, we're reminded of David and Samuel and the prophets. In Hebrews eleven thirty-three and 34, the writer records this for us. Through these examples who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. So the writer of Hebrews is, is saying, remember Remember who these men and women are. Remember what it is that has held them firm, that, that gave them their victory. It was not in their own wisdom and by their own strength. It was their faith and their courage and their trust in the Lord their God. In chapter 12, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, when you find yourself in the midst of life just whizzing past in a blur, when you find yourself stuck in a hole filled with anxiety and concern and worry, confusion, when things in life just are not clear, dare to stare deep into the heart of God. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. That's where we find God's promises. That's where we find God's plan. That's where we find our hope, our joy, our peace, and our strength. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. As we sung this morning in Psalm 20 verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Stuck in, in a hole like Joseph, we desperately make our pit homely and comfortable. We try to decorate our problems to cover them over. 
the walls which prevent us from being free, that bring us anxiety. We try to make them into our fortress. Our God becomes our own reason, the opinions we want to hear, the stories that confirm what we want to know. These are our chariots. These become our horses. But we need to cling to the hope and the promise that is only found in the Word of God. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. God wants us not to simply be saved and preserved the way we are, but, but to be recreated, redeemed and restored into His image, just as He created us in the beginning. When we're caught in the depths of the overwhelming circumstances, when we don't know what to make about the world, Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. That in doing so, He may change our hearts, our perspective. Let me promise you this, it will not be comfortable. It will be scary at times. But remember that despite the circumstances, God is in control. God has a plan and He is at work. As the church, as the people of God, we are His instruments the light of the world, to bear his truth. We can only do that when we dare to stare deep into the heart of God. You won't find it in the newspapers. You won't find God's heart in the news. It's not on television. It's not on Netflix. It's not on social media. You find it in the Word of God. Every word that is breathed by God. Dare to stare deep into the heart of God. That's our challenge as we battle life, just like Joseph. I can only imagine what it must have been like for this young man of 17 years old to be picked up and thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, brutal, harsh slavery. Wondering, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? Where are you, my God? God has a plan. God has a purpose. And the only way that we will ever understand that, even, even just in the smallest possible way, is if we dare to stare deep into the heart of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge this morning with humble hearts that life gets messed up. Life gets confusing and out of hand at times. Lord, we get distracted so easily. We get waylaid by the world around us. Lord, we need your hope. We need your truth. We need your transformational power within our lives, within our hearts. Lord, may we take this challenge this week on into the rest of our lives to dare to stare deep into your heart, to know your will above our own, to know what it means to be compassionate and merciful, to know what it means to be gentle and holy, 
to know what it means to be just and righteous and forgiving and gracious. Lord, would you lead us? Lead us in your ways. Everlasting, we pray. Amen.